0: I heard a story the other day about a woman who was um, pregnant with twins, and and when the day of the labor came, she she had complications in the labor, and they had to put her into an induced coma. Uh, She came around a few days later, and the doctor came to see her and said, congratulations, you've got twins, you've got a boy and a girl, don't worry, they're both doing great. The woman said, "But, but they haven't got names. And the doctor said, well, don't worry, your brother's named them. She said, but my brother's an idiot. So, okay, what did he call the girl? And the doctor said, Denise. And the woman said, oh, okay, that's, that's not bad. What did he call the, the boy? The nephew. I thought it was better than that. I was laughing for hours over that one. Why don't you grab your Bibles? Uh, take with me to Acts chapter 2. Um, Acts chapter 2, as we heard last week, gives us the, the, the uh, narrative of Pentecost, and we see the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early uh, disciples, a crowd gathers to see what the noise is about, Peter steps forward, gives this incredible first sermon, and 3,000 people get saved, and then Luke, who's writing Acts, he kind of gives us, it's sort of a summary, and he says this, Luke two forty two says this, all the believers, not just the 12, all of them, so all 3,000, all of them devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. I just want to focus on that one word for a few moments, if I can, that, that word devoted. All the disciples devoted themselves. In the Greek, it's the word proskaterio um, and in my translation, we, we get devoted, but if you look at the Greek, it means this to continue steadfastly, to attend constantly, to persist, to persevere, and to wait. And I think it's really deliberate that Luke uses this word here. He doesn't just say they listened to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to it. They didn't just pray once a week. They were devoted to it. They didn't just meet once on a Sunday morning. They were devoted to each other. And if you've been in in any of our prayer meetings over the last few weeks, we've been coming back to the same verse that God spoke through Jeremiah. God says to his people, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, God has plans for you. Can I just say that before I go anywhere? God has plans for you. They are plans for good. But often we stop at that verse because we like that bit. God's got plans for us, fantastic. But then he says this, but you've got to pray. You've got to pray. You need to pray first, and, I'll, and then I'll listen. God can't listen to if you're not praying. And then he says this, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. God says, you'll find me, but you've got to look for me wholeheartedly. And we've been talking in our prayer gatherings, we've been talking on Sundays about this idea of being all in. I think God wants us to be devoted. Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. A guy called Hanani said this, he said, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God wants to strengthen you. He wants to enact his plans in you. He wants to to give you these plans for good, but he wants you to be all in. He wants you to be fully committed, fully devoted. And if you look at the early church, they're devoted. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. There's a devotion to the word of God. They're devoted... To prayer, they're devoted to, to fellowship with each other, that Greek word, kinoinia. Um, and, and look what it says next a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And I don't think Luke is writing this kind of ad hoc. I think he's very intentional with his order because he says they're devoted to the word of God, devoted to prayer, devoted to each other. And because they're devoted, because they're all in, because they're fully committed, what happens next? Signs and wonders. And you get that natural order. And um, I don't know what you did for the bank holiday, but um, I spent bank holiday Monday painting our fence in the garden. Now, I am no painter. I am no painter. I am fairly rubbish with anything DIY. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not proud enough to admit that I am rubbish with anything DIY, actually anything involving a tool. I'll be honest. But, but I thought, well, it's, it's just a fence. So I went to a, a famous... DIY store, and, and I, I, got, I got the paint, I got a brush, I even got some sandpaper. I tried to get thinner, but that didn't work. So Sunday night, I'm, I'm, I'm sanding the fence down, I'm there for a couple of hours, sanding the fence down, and Monday morning, we did prayer at 7 o'clock, half past 7, I was in the garden ready, paintbrush in hand, ready to go to spend the whole day painting I was ready and I didn't realize there was a phenomenon called, called thirsty wood where the wood literally just drinks the paint and so I start painting and I suddenly discover our fence is very thirsty because once I've got to the bottom of the pole, once I get to the top again, that paint is gone. And, and this, this fence is drinking the paint, and I'm, I'm watching, and my heart is sinking. But eventually, the thing is, that wood can't, it gets to a point where that wood can't soak up anymore. And eventually, the color starts to show, it becomes, you know, the wood becomes saturated, the paint starts to become visible, and, and it's, it's really odd, because I was, like, rebuking this fence, I was casting the devil out of this fence, but God spoke to me, and he said this, it's only when you're saturated that it starts to show, that as I was painting that fence, the more I painted it, the more I painted it, the more I put it, it was taken in, taken in, taken in, eventually it had to show, eventually that color had to show. Jesus said this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever your heart is full of, if it's full, it's going to overflow. And it's going to come out and it's going to show. Solomon said this guard your heart, for from it flow springs of life. That 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 external outworking, it becomes an overflow. It, it comes from being, being filled. And as I was, I was looking at this wood, just soaking up the paint, I just felt God say to me, We need to be thirsty. We need to be thirsty. Now, we don't need to be fences, all right? Fences are rubbish. They just stand there and block other people doing anything. But we need to be thirsty. We need to be soaking up as much as we can because it's when we're full it starts to show. When we're full, it starts to overflow. And here in this passage, we see the disciples, and I've kind of rephrased this a little bit they are soaking. They're soaking up the word of God, they're soaking in prayer, they're soaking in fellowship, and then what happens? Signs and wonders. The external starts to reveal what they've been soaking in, and I just want to encourage you, church, if you're looking for God to, to use you, if you're looking to God for wisdom, if you're looking for God to, to give you the right words, can I encourage you, get thirsty. Will you just say, God, I want more of you. God, I want more of you. And I think God says, you know, when I was painting that fence, is the longer that fence was thirsty, the more I was painting. Because I was going to give it more and give it more and give it more until I started. And God said, I want to do that with you. I'll just give you more and more and more and more until it starts to show. Jesus said this, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. You can drink and drink and drink and drink and drink. And God's spirit never runs out by the way. It never runs dry. And when you're full, what comes out? Rivers of living water. It flows out of something that's full. Isaiah says this, with joy you will drink. You'll drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. And here's the overflow, we'll sing. In that day you'll sing, thank the Lord. Tell the nations what he has done. Let them know how mighty he is. What's inside us will come out of us, but it starts from a place of devotion. It starts from a place of commitment. It starts from a place of being all in and soaking up as much of God as we can get, and then God uses us to pour out what he's placed inside. Are you with me? Is that good? Uh, You know, if you've ever read the story of Esther, Esther, and I'm not kind of advocating for, for, for what Xerxes says here, but Xerxes says this, Um, Right at the start of the book of Esther, Xerxes, they they have this massive party, and Xerxes says this, that by edict of the king, so the king's orders were no limits on the drinking. Now, I want to be very, very careful because I know I'm I'm, I'm, I'm touching a line here, but I want you to see the the, the spiritual aspect of this. There are no limits on what you can have. And he's instructed his officials to give you as much as you want. So, So by edict of the king... You can have as much as you want. God's actually placed instructions that you can have as much of him as you want. And here's the question. If you could have as much as you want of God, how much would you take? How much would you take? A sip? A shot glass? Half a cup? Or would you drink deeply? Would you go all in? Would you be fully committed? Because you can have as much of the word of God as you like. You can have as much time in prayer as you like. You can have as much time in fellowship as you like. And I've said this before I don't think God's disappointed when we ask for more. I think God's disappointed when we settle for less. And God wants to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Let's get thirsty, church. Oh, Amen. Right, I'm done. No, actually, no. And, and what happens if you go through to Acts 3 then? So you move forward into Acts 3. And we see Peter and John heading into the temple. It says this, that Peter and John went into the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. First thing to notice is this, it's the three o'clock prayer services. Jews had three prayer services a day. Some of you are already starting to sweat. <laughs> they had three prayer services a day. The first prayer meeting was at six o'clock in the morning. The second one was at, was at nine o'clock in the morning and the Uh, Sorry, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m., sorry. The first prayer meeting was at 9, the second one was at 12, and the last one was at 3. So they have three prayer services a day, every day. They're committed to prayer. So Peter and John are doing what they they, they essentially always did because they're still Jews. They, They went to prayer. And I wanted to just, there's something else going on here, because look at who's, who's being mentioned in this story. is Peter and John. And if you know anything about Peter and John's story, there's a bit of a love-hate thing going on. Because so there's this great narrative where the, where the disciples hear that Jesus' tomb is empty, and, and they run to the tomb, and John goes, but I got there first. And then when Jesus appears to the disciples, he pulls Peter aside and says to Peter, listen, this is what's going to happen to you. And and, and it was probably a bit of a shock, but Peter turns around, looks at John and goes, what about him? And then in John's gospel, we can see it's it's actually Jesus who recognizes that it's, it's Jesus on the shore and not Peter. And I think it's hilarious that John writes in his gospel, but I saw him first. And in the space of a few months or a few weeks, they've gone from competing with each other, they've gone from comparing to each other, to actually they're going to the temple together. Why? Because they're devoted to each other. They've become devoted to each other. And it says this, as they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called Beautiful, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about 20, he asked them, for some money. So he so he is a man. The Bible says he's lame from birth. He has never walked. And you know we're never told his name? Cuz often in the Bible sometimes it will tell you the person's name, but we don't get this person's name. He's we get his problem. That he's defined by his problem. He's defined by his issue. He, he, and he hasn't had an accident. He hasn't sinned. He's just lame from birth. 40 years old and he's never walked. And he puts himself at the, 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 the gate of the, the temple, the place where the, the Jewish people are going in to pray. And here he sits every day, maybe, I don't know, 35 years, sat begging. And it's a bit annoying because we don't know exactly where the beautiful gate was. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but it's, it's, it's hot, so it's tricky to work out where he was. But we, we have to assume it's on the exterior of the temple. And the reason I say that is because it says his friends would carry him to the temple. They'd take him to the gate, but they never took him through it. Now, I know in my translation it says he was being carried in. I get that. Don't, kind of, don't write in. It, my translation's wrong. <laughs> I don't mind saying that. There's no in in the Greek. It just says he was being carried. So he's just being carried... As far as the temple, as far as the gates. And and in Jesus' day, there's certain places in the temple you couldn't go, depending on on your your sex or or your, your status. There were limits to how far you could go. So because he's a guy, he can at least get past the court of the women. He can get that far. Assuming he's a Jew, there's certain places he can go beyond that. But because he's lame, he can't do any of that. Because Levitical law said if you're lame, you can't go into the temple. You can read all about that Leviticus chapter 21, read it before bedtime, it's, um, it's, it's happy reading. But this was his daily routine. He couldn't go into the temple, but he could use it to his advantage. And he would sit outside because it's a temple where Jews went to impress God. For a Jew, it's seen to be good to be generous. It's a good status thing, to be seen to be generous to the poor. So this man positions himself and says, hey, you want to be seen to be generous? Here I am. And that's what he does. He positions himself there where, where people are coming in because he wants, to be, uh, he wants the, these people to give him money. And he goes there every day, every day to the temple, never inside it. And, and it stands to reason, I just want to ask this question, if he's done it every day, and the disciples have gone to the temple every day. Surely they'd have seen him before. In fact, can I push this boat out a little bit further? Surely Jesus had seen him before. So here's a question. Why didn't Jesus heal him? You can go away and come back with the answer to that one. So, But this guy is here. He's, he's outside the temple. He's begging. But today, Peter and John notice him. Today, Peter and John noticed him and it says, Peter and John looked at him intently and Peter said, look at us. And I want you to just understand why does Peter say that? He wants the man to engage with him. He wants the man to engage with him fully. And if you've ever walked past someone begging, you'll, you'll notice they'll look at you for a moment and then look away. They don't look people in the eye for too long because they, they're actually, they're onto the next person. They're looking to try and get the attention of the next person. And apparently they said within within a second, someone who's begging can tell if someone's going to give to them. So they just constantly kind of almost scan to move on to the next person because they can't afford to focus on this person walking past and miss these three. But Peter says, look at us. Focus on us. Give us your full attention. Engage with us. Stop looking around at everyone else and everything else. Look at us. Us. The text says they they looked at him intently. The Greek word there is is aten atenisis. and it sounds like attention. It means to fix your gaze. And I'm not looking anywhere else. I'm looking at you. You have my full attention. Hey beggar, I'm looking at you. You've got my attention. I'm engaging with you. Are you engaging with me? I'm focused on you. Will you focus on me? Go back to that passage. The eyes of the Lord search they focus on us what's he doing he's searching for those who will focus on god who are fully engaged if you want to be strengthened focus on jesus if you need wisdom focus on jesus if you need guidance focus on jesus if you're struggling focus on jesus hebrews 12 says this fix your eyes on Jesus, who, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. If he started it, he'll finish it. If he made you, he'll make you complete. But you fix your eyes on him. And as I was writing this, there was a tune that just leapt into my head that I, I sung as an eight-year-old in Pontian Mission, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look what? Full in his wonderful face. Everything else goes dim when you're focused on Jesus. And my translation doesn't quite carry the same meaning here, but the NIV says that, that he gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. I love that line. The ESV, English Standard Version, says he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive from something from them, and that he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive. He fixed his attention on them, and he expected to receive. Now, now, what he expected and what he received were two different things, by the way, but here's the point. He, he, he fixed his attention first, and then he expected to receive. He didn't expect to receive and then say, oh, I'll give you my attention then. God, please bless me, and then I'll give you my time. God, please, please do this for me, and then I'll give you my attention. Now, he fixes his eyes, and then he expects. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. If you fix your eyes on me, you'll find what I'm looking for. And Peter says this, I haven't got any money, but, but this is what I do have. I've got the name of Jesus. I've got the power of the name of Jesus. I've got the authority of the name of Jesus. And he grabs the man by the hand and helps him up. And it says this, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. I want you to see the completeness of the miracle here, because this guy has never walked. Never. Now, we've got a lot of babies in the church. A lot of babies. I love it. Most of them are either walking now or starting to. And I think we've got two or three that have got a little while to go. But when you watch a baby start to walk, they don't get it right straight away. One step, two steps, maybe, and they're down and, and they'll get back up again. It takes weeks for them to be fully confident. And we've all we've all done that journey if we're parents, grandparents, or whatever. But here's this guy, lame. 40 years, he's never walked. He's not taking baby steps. He's not toddling. He's gone being strictly lame to strictly come dancing in a matter of seconds because of the name of Jesus. A name that's so powerful, Peter doesn't have to hold a prayer meeting. He just puts his hands on the guy and says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man gets up and he doesn't... He doesn't crawl. He doesn't, you know, we we call it cruising, you know, where they grab onto everything and do this. He doesn't do do any of that. He doesn't fall over. He's walking and he's leaping. He's completely healed by the name of Jesus. How could Peter do that? Acts 2, they were devoted to the word, to fellowship, to prayer, to sharing in meals, and a deep sense of awe came over them all. What happened? They performed miraculous signs and wonders. That's why that, that Acts 2 thing, it's a summary of everything that's coming next. But it explains how they got there. Now the, the powers in the name of Jesus has nothing to do with Peter, but I, I'm convinced that Peter and John can do what they did in the public because they've been devoted in the private. I don't know about the band back up if that's okay, But I, I want you to spot one more thing. But the, the man's healed. And notice this. After the healing, he does something else he's never been able to do. He walks into the temple. He's been sat at that gate for 40 years, and for the first time in his life, he gets to go in. And church, it's our mandate to take people who have never encountered God, who've never set foot into the presence of God, and bring them into a place where they meet with God. And if you've been in church longer than a few weeks, you'd have heard or you know, at least seen our, our mission statement. You know, We, we talk, this, talk about this all the time, revive hearts, restore hope, rebuild lives. And Reviving Hearts is all about getting people to have a a real encounter with God, bringing them from outside to inside, showing them they can have access to God's presence. Restoring Hope is about helping people break free from their past, from their shame, from their hurts, their habits, their hang-ups. And Restoring Hope is all about helping people find purpose. Now, if you look at this text, look what happens to the man. Not only is he healed, but he's brought from outside to inside. He's brought from outside the presence of God to inside where he can meet God. I think he gets his heart revived because his relationship with God is restored in that moment. And then in this text, he's known as the lame man. That's what they called him, the lame man. You go forward another chapter and it says this, they call him the man who was healed. He's not the lame man anymore. He's the man who was healed. He's not defined by his issue. He's not defined by his past. He's defined by what Jesus did for him. I think that's restoring hope. And now he's healed, and we don't get this in the text, but it means for the first time he can go and get a job. Instead of begging to sustain himself, actually now he can go to work and provide for others. He's been given purpose. I call that having a life rebuilt. And as we close this series, I, I want to take you briefly back to September last year. And I just want to be honest with you a moment because we, we, we brought kind of three new phrases, if you remember. Back in September, we said that, that we really felt God had laid on our heart three phrases about digging deeper, living higher, and reaching wider. And digging deeper is all about getting into the Word of God. Living higher is all about prayer and, and, and being together, growing ourselves uh, in God, reaching wider is all about mission. And, and everything we do as, as a church feeds into one of those three statements. So, so, so Bible study, uh, Revive 242, prayer, toddlers, it all fits into one of those. And if I'm really honest, I had to wrestle with this a while and the slides have gone a little bit ahead. So it's just about to spoil my point, but never mind. Thanks guys. Because I got a little bit confused and I'll be, I'll, I'll hold my hands up because I was like, God, are you, are you, are you changing something here? And the words you gave us three years ago, are you, are you changing them, son? And, we, and we, we need to focus on these words. How, how can we do both? Is this just going to confuse people in the church? And I realized this because God wants both. Because reviving hearts, restoring hope, rebuilding lives, that's what God does. That's God's job. It's our job to live higher, dig deeper, and reach wider. And suddenly it made sense that we do this so God can do that. That our our vision is how we fulfill the mission. So so when we're saying dig deeper, live higher, reach wider, we're saying it so that we can restore hearts. Revive hearts, restore hope, rebuild lives. And if you look at the early church, that's what they did. Look at Acts 2 again. They devoted themselves to teaching. They dug deeper into God's word. They were devoted to fellowship and to prayer. They lived higher. They shared in meals. They reached wider. They were sacrificial. They looked beyond themselves. They, they included everyone. They stretched themselves so everyone could take part. What happened next? They changed the world, person by person.